I want you to imagine that you are standing in front of a Minnesota lake, one of the 10,000 lakes that we have here in this beautiful state. It's perhaps early summer. Uh, The lake you know is cold. And you are confronted with a choice. Do I walk in, slowly but surely, step by step, or do I go to the end of the dock and do a cannonball? Now, how many of you are the ones I go in step by step, taking it slowly? I just go step by step. That's how many of you are going off the dock and doing a cannonball? All right. I'm more of the latter end, okay? Let's get this unpleasantness over with. Uh, that's what I do. So I want you to picture that we're here in front of a lake of, well, let's just be honest, difficulty. Difficulty. Mark chapter 13 is one of the most difficult sermons, if not the most difficult sayings, that Jesus has ever had. Uh, This has been disputed hotly, probably most significantly over the last 200 years of church history, though it wasn't free from dispute before that. But today, if you were to pull up the teachings of your favorite preachers, the preachers you see on TV or you listen to on the radio or you would go online to try to resolve difficult questions, it's very likely those preachers themselves would not agree on what Jesus means in Mark chapter 13. And I'll just tell you, so far in our first few sermons, we've been kind of dipping our toe in the water. We've been understanding different aspects of how Jesus is pointing ahead to the destruction of the temple. But also he seems to have in his view a longer telescope. He's looking ahead to future events that have not yet occurred. And we've been wrestling with the fact that this sermon that Jesus preached was not intended to be some academic Talk, like like a, a professor with, with, a, with those, those glasses that go down on the tip of the nose, right? Looks up over the chalkboard, drawing pictures for us, and he's just giving you a, a dry lecture like, like you're back in high school. That's not his idea here. It's not his intent. His idea is, is to give us something practical. Oh, yes, there is teaching that we're going to need to think about and that we're going to need to study. But what we're trying to bring out of this passage is that it means something to us. It should change the way we live today. It should change the way we live tomorrow. I'm encouraging us to be real about this. And while we dive into this like students looking to understand something, I'm encouraging we even more than that to approach it as a learner who is trying to to change the way you are looking at life and approaching it today. Well, this morning, we're going to go off the deep end, okay? We're going to dive in. I don't know if we're going to do a cannonball. You'll have to decide like that at the end of the sermon, maybe depending on how big the splash was this morning. But I want us to jump in. And to do that, I just want to introduce this by saying we're going to have to look at some other Bible passages together. And we're going to have to try to compare Scripture, what Jesus says here, against other Scripture. We're going to try to understand the main positions 
on a particular aspect of what Jesus is speaking of here in Mark 13, verses 14 through 23. And hopefully laying a groundwork for us to continue swimming in the deep end this uh, upcoming weeks before ultimately we draw out our final conclusions. Now, it was funny because... I was asked this week, uh, Ingrid has been helping us select our hymns that we sing in our morning services. She asked, how many verses, uh, how much are you going to get through this week? And honestly, earlier this week, I wasn't entirely sure. Well, I have my answer today. Ingrid, we're going to get to half of verse 14. That's how far we're going to get through. We're going to get to half of verse 14. Now you say, Peter, you're only preaching about half of a verse today. Sorry, I told you we're jumping into the deep end, didn't I? So we're just going to have to take it. No, next week I don't think we're just going to cover the other half of verse 14, but that's where we're going to go, because here's why. Will you look with me at verse 14 of chapter 13? Notice that verse 14 begins with a but. But. That's a term of contrast. That means he's kind of changing the subject a little bit. He's been talking about the persecution and the difficulty that would be coming to his followers. And we understood last week, his disciples who heard this, they experienced that difficulty. And for about 2,000 years, Christians have been experiencing this difficulty. And you, in your life, may experience some forms of this difficulty. And in the future, those who follow Christ will experience this kinds of difficulty in perhaps an even greater way than humanity has ever seen to this point. And now Jesus says, but, but when ye shall see the abomination of desolation, you say, what on earth? The abomination of desolation, now keep on going, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Standing where it ought not. Now look at these parentheses. Let him that readeth understand. Now, think about those last words. We actually don't know from the text whether those were Jesus' words or whether those were the words that Mark put in parentheses to give us a little bit of a clue. I tend to think they were Mark's words, but whatever view you have on that, Notice that Jesus expects us to try to understand what he's talking about. He told us. The Bible says, are you reading this? Well, understand it then. So how are we going to understand what he's talking about? Well, he gives us a clue, doesn't he? He talks about an abomination of desolation spoken of by whom? Daniel the prophet. So we're going to need together to try to understand by dealing with Daniel the prophet. And the real question we're going to ask ourselves is this today. What is this whole abomination of desolation thing? What does that mean? And when we start to get a better clue of what that means, I think the foundation will be laid for us to keep on going in these verses that Jesus is speaking of and we are reading this morning. The, t- the, t- the subject, the title of the message this morning is simply this, The Abomination of Desolation. The Abomination of Desolation. And we're going to ask three questions for ourselves today. These are going to be our three points for our message today. The first question is this, what is this thing? What is the Abomination of Desolation? 
The second question we're going to ask is when does this occur? When is this abomination of desolation going to happen? The third question we're going to ask is, okay, what does this mean for us? Why does it matter? What should I take from this? And Pastor Peter, how will this change the way I live today? We're going to try to answer that question. This is, again, not just an academic, theoretical exercise by some professor. This is Jesus, our Savior, intending to teach us and affect the way we live today. Let's dive into the deep end, shall we? First question, what is the abomination of desolation? What is the abomination of desolation? Jesus says, but when he shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, then he says, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. In other words, he's saying, when you see that abomination of desolation, it's time to run. That's what he's saying. It, it, it would, the picture would be like you're on an airplane, and the airplane has had a crash landing. And everyone says, all right, exit doors open, get out. And someone in front of you in line is opening up the hatch, pulling through their stuff. Here, let me get some stuff out of here. The plane's on fire in the back. And he's pulling. Did you hear? Get out. Who cares about your stuff? This is the idea. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, are you going to be on, are you going to be on the housetop? Well, don't go back and try to collect the family heirlooms. Get out. If you're in the field, don't run back into your house and try to start rummaging things together. you got to run. You, you get the picture? That's what he's saying. Well, you might ask, well, when's this abomination of desolation? That's what we're going to try to answer a little bit today. Okay, you have an abomination of desolation, and Jesus says it was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So this means we're going to need to go back in our Bibles to the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel is right after the book of Ezekiel in your Old Testament, but before the book of Hosea. So if you're looking at Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel, you're moving forward. If you're in Hosea or the other minor prophets, you need to go back. Now, thankfully, I came prepared and I put a little marker in my Bible. So I just turned there. But I'll give you a little bit of time to find the book of Daniel. Maybe you can find it in, the, uh, in the, uh, the table at the front. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. And this is one place where what is called the abomination of desolation, or in this passage, what is called the abomination that maketh desolate. This is where this is referred to. Now, let's just start with a couple of general observations about an abomination of desolation or that makes desolate. The first question is this, what is an abomination? The word abomination is used in our Old Testament Bible and almost exclusively, maybe not entirely exclusively, but almost exclusively, it refers to something relating to idolatry to idol worship. Now, what is an idol? An idol is something that man sets up to represent God and worship. You think of an idol like a statue, something that a pagan people are bowing down to. 
people are following after this. This is my God. This represents my God. And throughout the Old Testament, God tells his people, don't make idols. Don't set up statues of animals. Because I'm not like that. I don't look like what you think I look like. You can't capture me as being a picture of a cow or of another kind of animal. You can't capture me in the picture of the sun or of any other of the planetary beings that have been worshipped across time. I don't look like that. You are lying when you set it up and you say, here's my idol, this is God. This is my depiction of God. And that's why we see in the second commandment of the Ten Commandments, don't raise up, don't make any graven image, don't make any statue, don't make any idol. This was the, the, the war that God's people were engaged in spiritually. They wanted to raise up these idols, and God was continually telling them, no. Okay, so over and over again in our Old Testament, the word abomination has the idea of idolatry, making an idol. So that's one clue right there. There's an abomination that is connected to idolatry, to making an idol. Now look at the second word, the abomination of desolation, or that makes desolate. Desolate is a word that we don't use very often today. We might say that desolation has the idea of something destroyed. Something that's been completely rendered empty. Nothing. The way you might use it today is if a city has been bombed out by war and the inhabitants have fled and the buildings are empty and they're knocked down by the bombing campaign, you would say, whoa, that city is desolate. It's empty. It has, it has nothing there anymore. It's been destroyed. It's been ravaged. You can come up with synonyms of this word, what it means. But that's the picture. So think about combining these two things together. You've got something connected to idolatry, right? An abomination, an idol of some kind. And what that does is that it renders something destroyed. It renders something desolate, empty. Okay, that's the picture. So Jesus is saying, when you see this idol, this kind of idolatrous event that renders something destroyed, that's when you're going to watch. Okay, now let's look with me at Daniel chapter 11, and we're going to look, start at verse 30. Now, I just need to give you a little bit of context. You can go read this chapter on your own and try to understand more of the context, but the basic idea here is that in the 6th century B.C., so about 530 years before Jesus, before Jesus came, about 500 years before, Daniel receives a vision. Daniel is this prophet of God who is in ancient Babylon as a faithful Jewish man who is, who is worshiping God, and God sends him a vision, a revelation of what will happen in the future. And now Daniel is writing this vision down. And these words in, in Daniel chapter 11 are, are a, a prophecy of things that will happen over the next several hundred years from when Daniel is alive. He is prophesying the future. In fact, do you know, friends, that these words that Daniel spoke, he wrote down, were so spot on the money with what happened between about 500 B.C. and between about 160 B.C. or whatever it is, that people who have come now, liberal scholars, have said he couldn't have possibly written it in 530 B.C. or so. He couldn't have done it. 
You can't predict the future that well. And so do you know what they've said? This was written after the fact. This was written after the events had already occurred because otherwise you couldn't predict them that well. Amazing, isn't it? I would say God knows how to see and predict the future, don't you think? And so Daniel is given a vision from God. And one of the things that he is, he is prophesying about, that he is speaking about, is what occurred in around the year 167 B.C. You can just make a note of this, and just a little bit of history. In that time, there was a king, a Greek king. He came from the reign of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, you may remember from school, had one of the great dynasties of this age. And from him came a king called Antiochus. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus came against the city of Jerusalem around 168 B.C. And he did, devastated it. Here's one thing that he did. He came into the temple that had been built where the worship of Jehovah was still occurring. And do you know what he did? He set up an idol in the holy place. Set up an idol. And not only he did that, he sacrificed a pig on the holy altar of God. Now, can you imagine to a Jew? Now, imagine, you know, perhaps Jews today, they keep kosher. They do not eat what? They don't eat pigs. They don't eat pork. They don't eat bacon. Pigs were unclean. Can you imagine to these Jewish people having an unclean animal sacrificed to Jehovah on their holy altar? It was devastating. Now, we just want to point this out. This is exactly what Daniel is prophesying. Notice what he says in verse 31. He says, and arms shall stand on his part. That's Antiochus's part. And they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. That's the temple and shall take away the daily sacrifice. Antiochus took away the daily sacrifice that had been prescribed in the Old Testament law of Moses. And listen to this. And they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Do you see what that picture is? What's the abomination? It's something connected to idols. And what does it do? It destroys. It renders desolate. And so when was this prophecy fulfilled? It was fulfilled, certainly, when Antiochus put an idol of Zeus, a pagan god, on, in the holy place, the most sacred place of the Old Testament covenant. Okay, that's a picture, the abomination of desolation, the abomination that makes desolate. Jesus is pointing back to what had already happened about nearly 200 years before at this time, and is saying this, there's a picture there. Now, let me ask you this. Does it make sense to say that when Jesus points ahead, but when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, do you think Jesus believed that those words were fulfilled by what Antiochus had done 200 years before? Does that make sense to you? It shouldn't make sense to you. Because that had already happened, right? That had happened 200 years ago. Now, Jesus is saying, but you guys... 200 years later, when you see it. Do you think he was talking about something that happened 200 years ago? I don't. I don't. So Jesus is clearly pointing ahead to something that will happen in the future. There will be another kind of idol worship. An idol, if you will, that is placed, defiling, disgracing, destroying something holy. 
And he, where does he say this will stand? Well, you remember in Mark 13, where it ought not. Now, Matthew gives us a clue. Matthew, in his account of Jesus' words, actually tells us that Jesus specified when it stands in the holy place, the holy of holies, the sacred temple of God. That's what Jesus says. Okay? So, what is the abomination of desolation? It's speaking of something connected to idols and idol worship that will defile, disgrace, destroy the holy place of God. Okay, does that simple so far? We understand that we have that so far. Well, let's move on next to when. When will this occur? This is a really important question, and this, frankly, friends, is the most disputed question. This is the one that, that gallons upon gallons of ink have been spilled on, and I just want to tell you, I'm in no better place than the brilliant men and women who have come before me trying to understand what this means. I'm not going to be able to tell you, well, this side is obviously right and this side's obviously wrong. What I want to do today is I want to just help you understand the sides. I want to understand, help you understand the positions and then maybe make at least a couple of comments on them. So to do this, we're going to go back two chapters from Daniel. Okay, so we were in Daniel 11, and now I want you to go two chapters back to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And this is important that we dive into this because Jesus, again, is expecting that we're going to understand. Let him that reads understand. Now, notice here in, in Daniel chapter 9, we won't go fully through the context. You can go back and read all of Daniel chapter 9. This is another vision that Daniel has been granted by God of things that will happen in the future. Again, this is about 530 or so years before Jesus is born. And I want you to notice in verse number 22, an angel comes to Daniel and tells him, Oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, your prayers, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. You are beloved, Daniel. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Now look with me at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now stop there for a minute. What were Daniel's people? What, what would we call them? They were the Jews, right? So he's saying, 70 weeks are determined upon your people, the Jewish people, and upon your holy city. Which holy city was that? Jerusalem. So we're talking about something that is uniquely affecting the Jews, and that is uniquely affecting Jerusalem. Okay? Let's keep on going. And notice these 70 weeks are decreed, are determined to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Interesting. And to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Three score and two weeks is 62 weeks. Remember he said there were 70 weeks. And now we have a division. We have seven weeks and we have 62 weeks. 62 plus seven weeks equals 
69 weeks. So he said, there's 70 weeks, and now I'm going to tell you about 69 of them. How many does that leave? Can we do math in our heads here? One! Wow, you guys are good. You passed elementary mathematics. Well done. 70 weeks. Now, we're not going to dive down into this deep water, okay? You are going to find an absolutely innumerable amount of positions. What are those 70 weeks? What are the 69 weeks? What are the 62 weeks? What's the last week? Let's put that aside. Let's just understand that what God is telling Daniel is, I have a plan for your people, the Jews. And I have a plan for your people the city in the city of Jerusalem. I have a plan for that. And it's a, de it's a determined time. Seventy weeks. Again, we're not going to get into that, the details. You can look more at that on your own time. But notice that he, was, that he, that he does say that part of this time decreed is going to be until Messiah the Prince. Now, who do you think he's talking about there? Jesus. We've been talking about Jesus. And part of what he's understanding here is that the work of the Messiah will be to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Does that sound like something Jesus did? Did Jesus bring in everlasting righteousness for you when he died on the cross? Did he bring in a reconciliation for your sin and my sin when he died on the cross? You better believe he did. So basically... Every conservative evangelical expositor will say this. This refers to Jesus. And it refers to his work on the cross. 530 years or so before Jesus was even born, God told Daniel, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to finish sin. He's going to deal with sin. Now keep on going. The street shall be built again, in verse 25 he says, and the wall, even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks, there's that 62 weeks figure again, we'll just put that to one side. Shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. The idea here is he was alone. He was alone. Now, was our Messiah cut off? Was Jesus cut off? He was hung on a cross. He was killed. Now, friend, I have to believe that Daniel, when he heard this vision, was scratching his head. What on earth does that mean? How could our prince, our king, our Messiah, how could he be cut off? But now, friends, we stand 2,000 years after it happened, and we look back and we say, Oh, I know the answer. I know. Because God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what Paul says. You say, I know how that works. Jesus was cut off. Okay, so far so good. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood and under the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now that's where everyone starts going different ways, folks, okay? Keep on going to verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, that daily sacrifice. And for the overspreading you could think of this as a wing of abominations. He shall make it desolate. 
Remember those words? Abomination of desolation? And now here, Daniel is saying, there's a coming abomination, and it's going to make things desolate. Again, he's talking about the same thing. Jesus is pointing back to this same prophecy. An abomination, something connected to idols, that makes something desolate. Now remember Antiochus. Antiochus put an idol in the holy place at Jerusalem. This is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is talking about. And now, here in Daniel 9, we see this again. I'm just going to do this for time's sake. I'm just going to give you two very, very quick views. These are the dominant views. There are other views beyond it. We're not going to go into every catalog of every single view. We're just going to look at the two main ones. Here's one. When it talks about the people of the prince that shall come, and they will destroy the city and the sanctuary. One view of this is that this refers to the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem. And the abomination of desolation was when the Roman soldiers swept into the city, knocked down the temple, and made sacrifices to their gods in the temple courts. That is one understanding. This was fulfilled in that time. It's done, that's what happened, that's what's being referred to. And so then when you transport that idea into Mark 13, right? Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, stand where where it ought not. You say, okay, well, I know what happened. He's referring to what would happen from his life about 40 years later, when in AD 70, 40 years or so after Jesus, the Romans swept in, destroyed the city. You say, okay. I think I might be able to understand that, right? Now, that's a very, very prominent view today. Daniel chapter 9 and Mark chapter 13 are dealing with what is in the past, with what happened in the temple when those Roman forces destroyed the temple, knocked it to the ground, not one stone upon another, and utterly swept over God's temple in Jerusalem. Here's the other view. The other view is that we're referring to something distant in the future, okay? The idea here is that in verse 27 here of Daniel chapter 9, when it says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. They're not talking here, he, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Prince. The other view says, this is the Antichrist. This is the one who will come in the future and set up a rule that will be against Christ. And ultimately, he will be destroyed entirely. This has a future application. Now, I want you just to to grapple with something here for a minute. If the abomination of desolation is something in the future, where's that abomination of desolation going to take place? Where? In what building? In what building? The temple. Now, we run into a challenge here, don't we? Is there a temple in Jerusalem today? If you were to go to the site of the old biblical temple, friends, you'd see a mosque there. 
the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the holiest sites of, 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 of Islam, you would not see a temple there. Now, do you know those who believe that this prophecy that Jesus makes of the abomination of desolation is in the future? Do you know what you have to believe? You have to believe the temple will be rebuilt one day. You have to believe it. You have to embrace that. That just as God miraculously brought the people of Israel, the Jewish people, back to have a nation state in the late 1940s, there were people who thought that day would never come. I cannot believe that there will ever be a state for ethnically Jewish people again. Nope, they're dispersed, they're gone, it can't be. Well, in the 1940s, they came back and they have a state, the state of Israel. You have to believe that one day there will be another temple rebuilt and that this abomination of desolation, this idol, this, this thing connected to idolatry, will stand in that temple one day again and make it desolate. Just like Antiochus made it desolate when he set up an idol in the ancient temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Just like in a certain sense, the Roman soldiers made God's temple desolate in AD 70 when they knocked it down and, and apparently did sacrifices in the temple courts. You have to believe that one day it's going to happen again. And Jesus is pointing ahead to that day. Well, you might ask, well, if we're wrestling with that question, is there any indication in the New Testament that there will be that temple that's rebuilt? Is there any suggestion in the New Testament that there might be a future fulfillment for what Jesus said here? And now I want us to turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2. Now again, if you're looking for where the book of 2 Thessalonians is, do you have any idea for what might come before it? This is a tough one. 1 Thessalonians. You guys are good. Good job. 2 Thessalonians comes right after 1 Thessalonians and right before 1 Timothy. So if you're in the books of Timothy, go backwards. And 1 Thessalonians follows Colossians. Okay, so 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2. We're just going to try to take a very high-level view of this to understand how it might apply to this question. Where is this abomination of desolation going to occur and what's going to be the time of it? Now look at verse 1 of chapter 2. This is Paul speaking to a new church in Thessalonica, a city that, he, that, had, come, that had a church that had come to Christ. Now we beseech you, brethren, he says, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind. I don't want you to be worried. I don't want you to be anxious or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. Now listen to this. As that the day of Christ is at hand. You say, okay, well, what's he saying? Here's what the Thessalonians were worried about. They were worried that the coming of Christ had already happened Cut them some slack. We live in a different age than they did back then. They were still very young in their faith. They said, we're worried. We're worried that Christ has already come and that we're already in the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord looks back to Old Testament prophecy that speaks of a day of fearful judgment, of fearful trouble, of fearful difficulty. Now, wouldn't that make you scared a little bit? If, you had, if the word started going around straight gate this morning, you know, did you know Jesus already came and, and you were left? 
And did you know the only thing you have to look forward to is miserable trouble and tribulation and difficulty? Wouldn't that shake you a little bit? Paul jumps in and says, whoa, guys, nope, nope, nope. Don't be worried. You're not in the day of the Lord. You're not in that season of tribulation. Why? Now look what his answer is. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. The idea is the son of destruction. Now notice his logic. He's saying you don't have to worry that Jesus has come already and that you're facing great tribulation and judgment. Why? Because something has to come first. Do you see that? In other words, it hasn't come yet. It hasn't come. Now notice what has to be revealed. There has to become a falling away first. The idea here is of apostasy. People falling away, rejecting Christ. And not just that, that there is a revealing of the man of sin. Now, we all sin. I sin, you sin, even as Christians, we sin. But we're not a man of sin. It's like someone who is a personification of sin. Like you look at him and everything just screams. He literally embodies sin. He embodies lawlessness. He embodies iniquity. I mean, this is like, I, I hesitate to say this. He is not the devil incarnate because we're going to see he is sent by the devil right? He is sent by Satan, but it's like if the devil, in a sense, that just personifies his entire character. Now, friends, this refers to the Antichrist, the one who will come in the future and stand directly opposed to Jesus and his truth. You can read about him. Um, he is identified with the beast, in the book of Revelation, if you've went, gone into the book of Revelation, he's identified with the beast. He is identified with Old Testament prophecy. This is the very embodiment of sin. Now listen to what Paul says. He opposes, in verse 4, and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Now listen to these very interesting words. So that he, as God, sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Hmm. What was the key sign of the abomination of desolation? What, did it, what was the abomination? It involved what? Idolatry. Idol worship. And what would it do to the temple? It would make it desolate, destroyed, profaned. Right? Right? Paul here is telling the Thessalonians, he's saying, don't worry that, that you're in these difficult days. Don't worry that Christ has come because something else has to come first. The man of sin has to come. And what's he going to do? He's going to stand in the temple of God. And he's going to say, I am God. Do you know that's what the Antichrist is going to do? He's going to associate himself with God himself standing in the temple of God. Now, friends, does that sound like something that would be desolate, that would be destructive, that would render something utterly desolate? To me, it does. You know, friends, I don't think there's a very good argument to be made that this has been fulfilled in the past. 
I don't think there's a very good argument to be made that this verse, someone identifying himself as God, happened when the Roman soldiers overswept Jerusalem in AD 70. I don't think there is. Do you know why? Because if you notice here in verse 8, if you skip ahead to verse 8, Paul says, and then shall that wicked be revealed. That's that man of sin. That's who he's referring to. It's a person. That wicked one will be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Who's going to destroy this wicked one? Christ is. That man of sin is a son of destruction. He will be utterly wiped out. He will be pushed off the scene. By what? By the coming of Christ. Christ will come and take care of him. Now, friend, did that happen? In AD 70, when the Romans came against Jerusalem, did Christ come and wipe out a man of sin who was the godless Antichrist identifying himself as God? Did that happen in AD 70? It didn't. It didn't. And that's what makes me believe that no matter what you believe about the abomination of desolation occurring in AD 70 and that being a foreshadowing of what's to come, or whether you believe that this interpretation is entirely in the future. I look at 2 Thessalonians 2 and say, I see that someday there's going to be an antichrist, a man of sin, and he is going to stand in the temple. What does that tell me, friends? It tells me there's going to be a temple someday. I look at 2 Thessalonians 2 and I see Paul speaking of something coming in the future where someone's going to stand in the temple and he's going to, in a sense, defile it. So I look at this passage, be, you be convinced in your own mind. I look at this passage and I think that Jesus is speaking of an abomination of desolation that may have foreshadowings in the past, Antiochus, the Roman army, that is pointing ahead to someday when the man of sin is going to be revealed and he is going to proclaim himself to be God in a rebuilt temple and it will be an abomination of desolation that is pointing toward the coming of Jesus Christ to wipe him off the map and establish his kingdom forever. That's my view. You be persuaded in your own mind on that. I've just given you a couple of, uh, just a very, very simple explanation of two views on that and a general idea of where I stand today. Now, let's look then, finally, at what it means to us. What it means to us. That's a very important question. You say, well, if we're talking about things that happened a long time ago, like the Roman destruction, and we're kind of telescoping out to the future of things that we don't know when they're going to happen, how does that affect us? Are we just kind of, oh, that was interesting, Pastor Peter. You gave me some good information on how to interpret these difficult passages. Let's go on with our day. No! How does it affect you today? Let me start by giving you a little picture. Last night, some of us went to a Twins game, and one of the ones that went was a little guy named Finn. Finn is my little nephew. It was his first ever Twins game. And you know something funny about Finn? If you take a look at Finn, I love that little guy. He's a, jo he's a jolly, jowly kind of guy. You know one of those guys, jolly and jowly. It jowls for days, right? I mean, just the cutest little guy. And, and, and Luke was carrying him around in one of those, I don't know, front pouches. You know, you just stick him in there and he just kind of sits there. I don't know that Finn made a peep the entire time he was at this baseball game for hour upon hour. He's, he's an incredible kid, right? 
he just is sitting right there, and he's looking around. He's kind of gurgling. He's looking around at people. He'd look at Uncle Pete and smile. You know, do you know what's striking about that? Finn was entirely not in control of what he was doing that evening. He literally had no say in it. He, he was utterly along for the ride. He was sitting on Luke's chest, and he was just kind of chill, looking around like, oh, this is interesting. Never seen this before. Do you know in a couple years, Finn's going to be a great little kid, but do you know in a couple years, Finn's going to care about what he does with his life? You know, he's going to want to claim control of his movements, of where he goes, right? The terrible twos are going to hit, and we're all going to pray for Luke and Sarah with fasting. You know what I'm talking about. You had kids. Kids fight for control as they get older. And some of you had teenagers. It got worse. They started fighting for control even more. And friends, do you know why? Because this is a human phenomenon. We want control. We do. Do you know this is one of the hardest ways, the hard, hardest things we need to, um, that, that we learn trust in God? We say, God, I want to control my life. I want to control my retirement account. I want to control the job that I have. I want to control how my kids turn out. I want to control what happens at my church. I want to control what happens in the 2024 election. And then we step back and look at our life and we're forced to realize, you know, I don't have control. I don't. I could get a call tomorrow like Marquita received saying, there's something abnormal on your brain and everything changes. You get a call from your boss. I'm sorry, it's not working out anymore. Everything changes. There's a crash in the stock market, and what you thought was secure in your 501k is now empty. It changes. Why? You and I don't have control. And you know, friends, the sooner we realize that and we embrace it, do you know, it's not going to make you more scared. It's going to make you less Oh, if I lose control, I'm not going to know what's going to happen and I'm going to get more anxious. No, no, actually the opposite. Biblically speaking, when you know you don't have control, it's very liberating. Because who does have control? He does. That's why Jesus taught us to pray our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. You're in control. Your will be done. Let it be done here on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. I don't control that. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass. I can't forgive myself. And lead us not into evil, but deliver us. But lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I can't control that. You can. And what is it? It's about whether I'm controlling my life or whether he is. And do you know how freeing it is, friends, when we're able to say, God, you're the one in control. I'm not. It'll make you pray more. It'll make you get into the Bible more. It'll make you trust more when you say, God, I'm not the one in control of this. You say, why do, why do you take us there? Because, friends, look at these, this, this picture of this abomination of desolation. Can you imagine these Jews listening to Jesus' words for the first time, hearing that their temple was going to be destroyed by foreign invaders? How do you think that made them feel? Completely out of control? Completely anxious? Completely shaken? You're saying our national identity as Jews is going to be plunged to the ground? No! And Jesus says, 
Do you know what Jesus says in Mark 13? I have foretold you all things. Do you know what that means? Jesus knows. He sees the future. He knows exactly what's coming. And the future is controlled by him. He's king. He's king. And you know, friends, in your day and in some future day of tribulation and of abomination of desolation in the future, God's people are going to feel very keenly, I'm not in control. I'm not in control. And then when you step back and realize that Jesus, the king, when he was on earth, said, I foretold you everything, you say, oh, that's right. That's right. History is his story. It's your story, isn't it, Jesus? It's all about you. That's right. And when this abomination of desolation that's going to be so fearful and so anxiety-inducing, when that comes into the world, you're still going to be in control, aren't you? Yep, yep, I am. And that means, Jesus, when I lose my job unexpectedly or I get a health diagnosis today or tomorrow or the next day or my family doesn't turn out like I wished or I've got some political or economic upheaval that, that seems to throw everything in my life into chaos, you're still in control, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, I am. I've got you. You remember that song we sang today, Children of the Heavenly Father? There's no evil that he allows to come to his children because all things work together for good to them that love God and who are called according to his purpose. Friends, here's how this passage changes your life today. I don't know that you ever will live through an abomination of desolation, that much chaos, that much upheaval, that much difficulty. You, you and I may never do, but you and I are living through our own stuff right now, aren't we? Yeah. And if Jesus controls what happens in the abomination of desolation, and he's going to come in and re restore his rule perfectly in that day. Don't you think he's got you too? Last night, I was coming home from that baseball game, and it was about 10 o'clock on the nose, and I started hearing explosions. Boom! Boom! And I noticed someone in the car next to they, they were like rolling down the window and trying to figure it out. And I had to think about it for a minute. Wait, what's going on? What's going on here? It was, it was the summer festival in Minneapolis. It was the Aquitennial fireworks. And sure enough, we drove over that 35W North Bridge going north and over the river there over Boom Island, just these, these incredible fireworks display. It's like, wow, that's really cool. Do you know, friends, if I had heard those same booms and I was in the country of Ukraine last night, do you know I would have thought something far different? I wouldn't have been looking up for fireworks. I'd have been running for cover. I'd have been scared. I'd have been anxious. I've got to protect my family. Same kind of booms, same sound. Very different experience of, whoa, cool, and watch out. Here's my point. When you recognize that your life is under the control of a sovereign God who loves you, who knows you, and who controls your future, when you hear the booms going off, you don't need to run for cover. You can say, he's got this. And by contrast, if you don't know that God, if you've never come to Jesus Christ by faith and entered his kingdom by trusting in him and giving yourself to him, if you don't know that God, when the booms of your life go off, you're going to be running for cover. You're going to be scared. You're going to be anxious because you don't know the one who's in control. And so as we close this morning, I want to say this. 
If you don't know Jesus today, if you've never entered his kingdom by faith, if you don't know that you are a child who is loved and cared for by an almighty, all-knowing God, then today's the day not to leave this church before you've given your life to him.